I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we'll look this evening at verses 1 through 12. Listen now to the holy and inerrant Word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your Word is indeed a treasure to us. We give you praise for it, and we ask as it is read and preached this evening that you might give us ears to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, that we might follow after him that we might be nourished and protected by Him, refreshed in His grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this evening we continue our series through the gospel according to John. Last time, if you remember, we transitioned from the public ministry of John the Baptist to the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the evangelist gave us an eyewitness account of the way that he and four other men became Jesus' disciples. As we noted, he repeated the phrase, come and see, three times in that account, highlighting the theme of that section and the overall theme of the gospel. In the supernatural realm, seeing is not believing. On the contrary, in the supernatural realm, one must believe in order to to see. And the effectual call, or the new birth, the birth from above, as Jesus will tell Nicodemus, makes sinners both able and willing to believe. And so God saves sinners by His own sovereign initiative as He gives them eyes to see the glory of His incarnate Son, who is the light of the world. In our text for this evening, we encounter the first of seven miraculous signs and wonders 
in the section of John's gospel, which has traditionally been called the book of signs. This book forms the first half of the main body of the gospel, and it runs from chapter 1 and verse 19 to chapter 11 and verse 57, so through the end of chapter 11. Jesus' first sign is His turning water into wine. And in this sign, we see the beginning of the unfolding manifestation of Jesus' messianic glory, which eventually culminates in His eighth and greatest sign, namely His resurrection from the dead. As we saw last week, chapter 1 ends with Nathanael's confession, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, to which Jesus responds, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And so in this sign, we see the beginning of those greater things. We'll divide our text for this evening into three sections. The first, verses 1 through 5, where we see the occasion of the sign. The second, verses 6 through 10, we see the performance of the sign. And then the third, verses 11 through 12, where we see the purpose of the sign. So let's begin there in that first section, verses 1 through 5, where we see the occasion of the sign. Look again at verses 1 and 2. The text says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. So John begins with yet another time stamp, namely, on the third day. Now, some have attempted to discern some hidden significance to this by counting up from the previous days that he's mentioned to arrive at perhaps a sixth, a seventh, or an eighth day, depending on how one counts. Some have even tried to make a connection with the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. But there's no indication in the text that John intends to communicate anything more than the historicity of this particular event, particularly its nearness to the events of chapter 1. And so in this way, John, as an eyewitness, reveals that the sign he's now narrating for us isn't merely the first in the series that he chose to record, but most likely the actual first of Jesus' public ministry. And that's why he says later in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. In other words, this sign marks the beginning of Jesus' messianic self-disclosure through his miraculous signs and wonders. Now, besides the timing of the sign, John also reveals its occasion and its setting. The occasion was a wedding, and the setting was Cana in Galilee. The setting is important for at least two reasons. First, for John, Jesus' presence in Cana serves to book in the first main division of his public ministry. And so as we trace Jesus' ministry moving forward in the Gospel of John, having begun in Cana, where he performs this first sign, he then travels to Jerusalem for a prescribed feast, and then afterward he travels back to Cana in chapter 4 and verse 46, where he performs his second sign, 
before returning to Jerusalem for yet another feast in chapter 5 and verse 1. And so there's a kind of bookending of this kind of first stage in Jesus' public ministry in John's gospel uh, with the city Cana in Galilee. Second, Cana was Nathanael's hometown. We don't learn that detail until later in John's gospel. We see it in chapter 21 and verse 2. But I think it's interesting that Cana was Nathanael's hometown. And Nathanael's the man who just responded to Philip's report about Jesus in chapter 1 and verse 46 saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, with that question, you remember, Nathanael questioned how such a significant or an insignificant town could be the home of such a significant figure, someone like the Messiah. Wouldn't the Messiah be born in Jerusalem? Wouldn't he be born in the city of David, the royal city, the city of God, where the temple of God sits? Well, no, he's born in the backwater town of Nazareth. And as it turns out, Nathaniel's hometown, the man who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel's hometown, Cana, was just as insignificant. Yet it was the place, it was the place where the Lord of glory, the incarnate Son of God, determined to begin the process of manifesting His messianic glory through His miraculous signs. And in this, I think we see the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in His first coming came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down His life as a ransom for many. Now, regarding the occasion, not the setting, but the occasion, the wedding itself, much has been made about the fact that Jesus performed this first sign at a wedding. Now, I believe that particular connection has some merit. In the Bible, the joy of weddings is often associated with the joy of the Messiah's coming and the consummation of His work on the last day. We see this, for instance, in Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 25, Mark chapter 2, Luke 12, and of course, Revelation chapter 19. Clearly, those redemptive historical themes are in view at this point. But this also adds another layer of significance to those that John identifies later in verse 12 as having been in Cana with Jesus and His disciples, namely, Jesus' mothers, or pardon me, His mother and His brothers, by which, of course, the text means those that Mary and Joseph bore after Jesus' virgin birth. So just as Jesus' mother now attempts to push Him into revealing His glory in her own timing rather than in God's timing, so later in John's gospel, in chapter 7 and verses 3 through 4, Jesus' brothers will do the same. This indicates a transition in Jesus' familial connections beyond that which is natural to that which is supernatural by virtue of God's election and the new birth. Jesus has a connection with His disciples that transcends mere natural relations and may be described as that of a bridegroom to his bride. 
Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so just as a son leaves behind the natural familial union with father and mother, which he has had from birth, in order to be united with his bride in an even deeper spiritual way. By the way, that one flesh union, that's not just about intercourse. It's a, it's a spiritual union that is hard to define, hard to describe. And so in that same way, Christ at this stage in His ministry, as He begins in earnest His public ministry, He leaves behind His earthly family, in a sense, in order to be joined in that deeper spiritual way with His disciples. Look at verses 3 through 5. The text says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever He tells you. So unlike modern weddings, which typically involve a reception that lasts a few hours at most, ancient weddings involved several days of feasting. And it was the responsibility of the groom to provide for the feast. In this case, it appears the groom was a man of rather humble means, which makes sense. After all, he lived in Cana in Galilee. And so rather than buying too much, just in case it was needed, he bought too little in the hopes that it would be enough. But it wasn't enough. Eventually, his store of wine is exhausted, which threatens to disgrace him in the eyes of his guests. So it's not simply that they ran out of wine. Someone needs to go to the store and get more wine. It's not simply that. This is a matter of his reputation being at stake. And so Mary informs Jesus of the problem. Unlike everyone else at the wedding, she knows the divine power of her son. She was told by the angel Gabriel about that divine power when Jesus was conceived in her virgin womb. She'd likely already witnessed various signs of that power in Jesus' earlier life. She's in the know, so to speak, unlike everyone else, and that's why she alerts Jesus to the lack of wine. She knows that Jesus has the power to fix this problem. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't respond by cracking his knuckles and, and getting to work. Instead, almost counterintuitively, he issues a mild rebuke to his mother, saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that he addresses her as woman rather than mother isn't disrespectful. Jesus isn't talking back or talking down to his mother in any way, but it is strange. By using that address, I believe what we see here is Jesus is appealing to the more fundamental relation between them. Though in one sense, he is her son. In another, even more fundamental sense, 
He is her creator and her Lord. And so as he enters his public ministry, it's important for her to understand that his timing is not the same as her timing. And his ways are not the same as her ways. That's why he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, the hour to which Jesus refers is the timing of the unveiling of his messianic glory for all to see. Ultimately, that comes through his death, his burial, and his resurrection at the end of his public ministry. And so later in chapter 17 and verse 1, the Lord Jesus will pray to the Father just before his betrayal and arrest saying, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, to her credit, Mary demonstrates her willingness to defer to Jesus' timing. She doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't contradict what Jesus has said. She simply says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And thus we see yet another major theme of John's gospel, namely the fact that no human being can command God. No human being can command God. As Jesus teaches Nicodemus in chapter 3 and verse 8 of this same gospel, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does Jesus mean? No one commands God. No one commands the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does as He pleases. How much power did you have over your own natural birth? Well, if you're like me, you had zero power over that. How much more your supernatural birth if you have been born from above? We have no power over the Spirit's work of regeneration in our hearts. This is God's work from first to last. God, not man, is in control of His creation. And He determines when Jesus' public ministry should begin and no one else. Not even the Blessed Virgin Mary. Small v. Verses 6 through 10, we get to the second section the performance of the sign. Look again at the text. The text says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. John describes six stone water jars. For the Jewish rites of purification, these were likely used for the ritual washing or baptizing of the hands of the guests before the feast began. 
That baptism would have been applied by pouring some of the water from the jars over the hands of the guests. Now, each jar held 20 to 30 gallons, and now they're completely empty. So this must have been quite a large party. Jesus makes use of the jars by commanding the servants to fill them with water once again, which they do. And then He commands them to draw some of the water out and to take it to the master of the feast, who served very much like a master of ceremonies, which again they do. And when the master of the feast drinks from the cup, unaware of what's just happened, the water has become wine. But not just any old wine, good wine, not Manischewitz or Gallo, but the best wine like Chateau Lafitte or Cheval Blanc. And thus we have an objective observer, one who most likely wasn't inebriated, given the fact that he's working to oversee the feast, and one who most likely knew the difference between good wine and not so good wine. We have this man judging Jesus' wine. His verdict is this, it's very good. And thus he commends the bridegroom. Again, unaware that it's from Jesus, he commends the bridegroom for his apparent generosity in, share, in saving the best for last. And that moves us to the, to the third section, verses 11 through 12, where we see the purpose of the sign. And this is where I want to spend the most time. Look at verse 11. The text says, This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So John now tells us why Jesus performed such signs, among which was this first sign. Through the sign, he says, Jesus manifested or showed or demonstrated or revealed his glory, his perfection, his excellence, his beauty, his power. So this relationship between such signs and the revelation of divine glory is something that began, as we noted in our first Scripture reading for the evening, in the book of Exodus, thousands of years earlier. But before we go there, we need to clarify what John means by the word sign. There are different kinds of signs in Holy Scripture. There are sacramental signs, also known as signs and seals, and there are miraculous signs, also known as signs and wonders. And we dare not confuse the two. Both are signs because they point away from themselves signifying deeper spiritual realities. But whereas sacramental signs are repeatable, ordinary means by which the Spirit does the work of sanctification among all believers in common without His work necessarily being tied to the moment of the signs administration, miraculous signs are different. Miraculous signs involve special, non-repeatable, immediate, supernatural acts of God in the world. Another way to think about this is sacramental signs have to do with the ordo salutis, that is the order of salvation or salvation's application to each individual sinner, whereas miraculous signs have to do with the historia salutis, that is the history of salvation, or we might say salvation's accomplishment by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
So the kinds of signs that Jesus performs during his public ministry, like the changing of water into wine, are miraculous signs. They are signs and wonders. And so later in chapter 4 and verse 48, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so Jesus himself understood that he was performing those kinds of signs, signs and wonders. Now, the first time we encounter that phrase, signs and wonders, in the Bible is during the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3, as Moses prepares to confront the Pharaoh for the first time, God tells him this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And that's exactly what happens. The Pharaoh refuses to submit to God's command, and so God sends the first of ten signs and wonders down upon the Egyptians in the form of a plague. And what was that plague? He turned the water of the Nile, and in fact, really the water of the whole land, into blood. Does that sound familiar? Later in chapter 6, Jesus will teach the crowd that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no life in him. Of course, Jesus isn't endorsing cannibalism. He's simply reinforcing the idea that he is the life-giving bread sent from heaven. In order to be cleansed from sin and to receive the covenant blessing of life in him, one must come to him and eat of him, which are metaphors for believing in Him. There is a way in which we truly feed upon Christ's flesh and blood. We don't do that in a carnal or fleshly matter or manner. As Jesus taught His disciples later in chapter 6 and verse 63 in that same teaching, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so as Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's pointing forward to the significance of the sacramental sign of the Lord's Supper, in which his flesh is signified by bread and his blood is signified by wine. So clearly in the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace, we see a connection between blood and wine. We see that connection every time we come to the Lord's Supper to sit at His table, to commune with Him and with one another. And so that brings us back to the first miraculous sign that God performed during the Exodus. God changed the water of the Nile into blood. But for what purpose? He did that to manifest His glory before both His enemies, the Egyptians, and also His own people, the Hebrews. And how? Well, at the most basic level, that sign and wonder manifests God's power as creator. God is changing one created thing into another simply by willing it. But there's more to it than that. Each of the miraculous signs that God performed in Egypt was an act of judgment against the Egyptians for their sin, for their idolatry. And each was particularly designed to reveal that the Lord was the one true and living 
God, not the various gods of the Egyptian pantheon. Now, one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped and served was the god of the Nile. The Nile was the source of life-giving water for the Egyptians. It was like the artery running through the heart of, of Egypt. It provided that life for Egypt. Without it, they would die. And so, for God to turn the life-giving water of the Nile into blood, into death, is a sign of judgment. As Moses brings his staff down upon the Nile, he brings the rod of God's judgment down upon it from heaven. Now, eventually, in the tenth and final sign, that judgment falls on all the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt, except, of course, the houses of the Hebrews who were protected by the blood of the Passover land. And so the same sign which signifies judgment for the Egyptians also signifies salvation for the Jews. What is blood and death for the Egyptians is wine and life for the Jews, which is why the Passover involves the drinking of several cups of wine. So now let's return to Jesus' first sign in Cana of Galilee. Given this background from the Exodus, what do we see here? Where do we find the water of the Nile, if you will, which represented Egypt's trust in the creature for life rather than the Creator? Where do we find it at this wedding? We find it in the jars for the Jewish rites of purification, rites which the Jews had perverted in Jesus' day by forgetting that they were merely sacramental signs meant to point to the one who could actually cleanse their hearts. Instead, they treated the, the rituals, they, they treated the ceremonies as if they were the supernatural works that they signified. In other words, like Egypt with the Nile, the Jews of Jesus' day were by and large depending on the creature, depending on themselves for life rather than the Creator. But rather than turning this water into blood, Jesus turns it into wine. Why? Well, again, the wine of the Passover is a sign of the covenant blessing of life. The wine of the Lord's table is a sign of the covenant blessing of life. And so rather than giving His people the blood of judgment, the covenant curse, which they deserve for their sins, God gives His people in the sending of His incarnate Son the covenant blessing. He gives His Son in their place to die for their sins. Jesus is able to turn the water into wine and turns the water into wine because he lays down his life and spills his blood willingly for his people. John makes this connection more explicit later in chapter 19 and verses 31 through 37. Admittedly, this is a cryptic text and there are a lot of different interpretations of it. But bear with me. Just after Jesus expires on the cross, you remember what the text says, since it was the day of preparation, and so, 
uh, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. We're getting ready for the, the week-long um, Passover celebration. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. Or pardon me, and saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place to fulfill the Scripture that, or took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So why why does blood and water flow from Jesus' side? Well, these are images that reach back to the first miraculous sign, the first sign and wonder that God performed to redeem His people out of Egypt. That sign was judgment for the Egyptians and salvation for the Jews. What God is teaching us is that His only begotten Son, the Word made flesh, has suffered that judgment in our place as our substitute. He was given up for the sins of the world. He has thus become the dividing line between those who remain under God's judgment and those who receive His salvation. All those who look to the crucified Messiah see both judgment, the blood, and life-giving salvation, the water, cleansing. But only those who believe in Him receive salvation. The rest receive judgment. And that's what's behind the first of Jesus' signs. By changing the water into wine, Jesus is pointing forward to the fact that He will receive the judgment in blood that His people deserve for their sins so that they might receive the wine of life and salvation and celebration in Him. Now, one other thing to notice about this sign and the rest of Jesus' signs is the lack of pomp and ceremony in its performance. I think that's rather remarkable. Jesus performs this miraculous sign quietly. And thus we see that His divine power, while active, is nonetheless veiled in humility at His first coming. And that's a key part of His messianic glory. Jesus didn't have to make a big show to manifest His glory to His disciples. And the same is true of all signs and wonders. They sufficiently signify divine glory, but they can never actually replace it. That's what makes them signs. And because they can't replace it, they must, by definition, be lesser than that divine glory. Now, one day, Jesus will come in the fullness of His divine glory But that day has yet to arrive. Look at verse 12. The text says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, this verse seems like a mere interlude, simply explaining where Jesus went after the wedding. But there's more to it, really, than that. 
Here is the Lord of glory, having just manifested His glory in His first sign. And what does He do? He doesn't go out to make a show in order to attract as many as He possibly can to Himself. As we'll see in the next section, He doesn't entrust Himself to men because He knows what is in man. Instead, He is content to simply go back to the hometown of His disciples in order to commune with them, with His mother, and with His brothers. And so the Creator God is here dwelling with His creatures as one of them in an estate of humility. And it's this humility and willingness to wait, to wait for the Father's timing that makes Jesus' messianic glory all the brighter. And so I ask you this evening, have you seen that glory? You can't see it with the natural eye. I mean, look around. We're not very glorious. Certainly there's a beauty within the image bearers of God. There is a worth. But there isn't much outward glory, is there? And everything's corrupted by sin. Have you seen the glory of the Messiah? It's veiled for now. For now we walk by faith and not by sight. The only way you can see that divine glory is if God opens your eyes. If He, through the effectual call, gives you eyes to see so that you might flee to Christ and entrust yourself to Him, turning away from your sin and pursuing pursuing His will. I pray that you would see Him as we make our way through John's Gospel, that you would see through this window, the glory of our Messiah who came in His first coming. I think this is a key part of what Jesus means when He says to Nicodemus that He did not come in order to judge, but to save. Of course, He doesn't need to come to judge. Everyone's already under judgment. But He comes to save all who will believe in Him. A day is coming. A day is coming. In the twinkling of an eye, He will come in judgment, in glory. And it'll be an awesome day, a glorious day for those who are united to Him by faith. It'll be the day that faith finally becomes sight and you see the glory of your Messiah with your own two glorified eyes. You see Him the way He sees you. But until that day comes, we walk by faith. But if that day comes and you're not in Christ, if that day comes and you've not trusted in Him, it will be a terrible day. It'll be the last thing you ever want to see. And so I implore you, look to Him. See His glory now in the text of Scripture by the power of the Spirit so that you might see it as beautiful, as lovely, and flee to it rather than from it on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the glory of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We give you praise for the way he demonstrated his messianic glory in changing the water into wine some 2,000 years ago. And Father, we give you praise that he came into the world not to condemn us, but to save us. We thank You, Father, that He stands ready and willing even now to receive any who would come to Him and believe upon Him. Father, I I pray that You by Your Spirit would indeed uh, draw us to Him by faith each day. And if there are any here who haven't yet believed in the Lord of glory, who haven't yet seen His beauty, You might open their eyes to see it. They might flee to Him and find life and salvation in Him. That they might not receive the judgment of blood and death on the last day, but instead drink the cup of of wine, the cup of blessing and celebration. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.